We are today moving into the Christmas season. We're thinking about Christmas words. You saw those words come up. And, and I think in our culture, boy, when we say Christmas, there are very specific pictures Words, ideas that, that fly into our mind when we hear that. For me, it's words like Colorado. I haven't spent every Christmas in Colorado, but most of them have been there. And I think of family and home. I think of lights. Man, you got to think of food, right? It's just hard to, to leave food out of that mix. <laughs> Those are some of the words that come to my mind. And I'm sure you have words and pictures. You know, I think whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, religious or sacred. In the American culture, there's nothing quite like this time that we call Christmas or the, the holiday season in between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. It is so filled with tradition. And those traditions make up how we understand this season. And boy, if you pull out one or two of those words, pull out three of those words, we'll just pack everything up and put it in the attic. It's not Christmas anymore. I mean, that's how significant these ideas are to us. Well, I think what has become a part of our traditions in celebrating, I think you find that some in Scripture. There are some very significant words, a picture, an idea, that when you remove that word, you don't, you don't hardly have Christmas anymore. And, and so for this season, we're going to study some of those words, five to be exact. You say, where did, how did you decide on five? Well, we have four Sundays and Christmas Eve. That's five. That's how I spiritually came before the Lord and figured out that's how many messages we're going to have. As a matter of fact, with only five, guess what? I left out some words. I'm a little mad at myself. I'm going to write myself a strongly worded letter tomorrow. I just, you, know, you know what we're not going to look at? I'm not looking at the word manger. <gasps> Say, <gasps> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Star? Shepherds? Now, if you don't have, I mean, almost every Christmas card we get is going to have a star, a shepherd, or mangers on it. But not in this message. We're just ignoring all that. We say, why are you ignoring it? Because I only have five. Now, what am I going to look at in the five? Well, we're going to look at virgin. We're going to look at that. It's a pretty significant word. We're going to look at Jesus. Now, that's, that's pretty central to the whole Christmas story, right? Yeah. Wow, folks. <laughs> Come on now, it's Christmas story, little baby Jesus. That one ought to be, I remember that one, yeah. Jesus is pretty central to the Christmas story, isn't he? Yeah, I knew y'all knew that one. Uh, frankincense, we are going to look at and figure out popcorn, plate of popcorn there and everything. We'll probably look at golden myrrh too. Uh, we're going to look at, now this one you probably don't see. This is one you might think, well, why don't you take that one out and put banger back in? We're going to look at the word fulfill. Fulfill, fulfill actually is huge in what is going on in the Christmas story. We're going to find out that the Christmas story is just as much in the Old Testament as it is the New. Then the last word we're going to look at is angels. You know, when I was mapping this series out and picking out those words, and I started thinking about the angels, and I started jotting ideas for that story, I got so excited jotting that, I ended up writing the whole sermon right then and there. I am ready to preach the Christmas Eve service right now. Y'all want to come back tonight? We'll do Christmas Eve. Okay, yeah. well, I'm not going to be here, but I am ready. I, I absolutely am ready for Christmas Eve service. But today, today we're going to look at this word virgin. Now we know what that word means, and I don't know if that's a word we throw out all the time, that we use all the time until we come to Christmas, right? 
At Christmas, that's a a very appropriate word to throw out there and talk about. It'll be on some of our Christmas cards. And we see how virgin relates with the Christmas story, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's look at these verses. The first one I want to show you is Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. And this verse was written about 750 years before what you and I call Christmas. 750 years before. I'm kind of bleeding over into the to the fulfill message, but God wanted to make sure we didn't miss it. He wanted to make sure when the Messiah comes, when the Son of God comes, because He's going to come different than what we were thinking. And and so to make sure we don't miss it, God starts giving prophecies. He starts giving these signs, so we say, ah, there it is. God said it would look like that. God said it would be that, and here's one of those signs. 750 years before what you and I call Christmas, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name, we've been singing it all morning, Emmanuel. When we say Emmanuel, that is a Hebrew word. To be exact, it is three Hebrew words. That means God with us. Clearly, this is not your normal kid, is it? This is not a son like any other. He has a name that's not like any other. His name is God. That's who this son is. Now, the next passage, this does come out of our Christmas story in the New Testament. Luke is one like it in Matthew. Uh, The angel Gabriel, where I'm picking up here, the angel Gabriel's already come to Mary and said, hey, you're going to have this really special son. He's going to be called the the son of God. It's going to be really cool. And Mary says, "Uh, time out. Uh, How's that going to happen? I'm a a virgin, so, you know, not going to be having a baby. And the angel answered her. That's just pretty key. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You know what? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you watch the Spirit of God, it hovers over the nothingness. It hovers over the darkness and it begins to create. He begins to create. In the same way that we see God creating the original creation, God is going to hover over Mary and He is going to create. He is going to place this child in her womb in a very special way. Therefore, because it happened like this, therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy. He'll be called the Son of God. Folks, clearly, Jesus is the most unique person to ever walk on this planet. For He had an arrival like no other. Amen? And he has a name like no other. We've been singing it all morning, Emmanuel. His name is God. His arrival into this world is so monumental that there's something we do every day to remember it and we completely forget about it. The date. His arrival is so monumental, we mark time by it. We have B.C. before Christ. We have A.D. Anno Domini. This is the 2013th year Anno Domini, the 2013th year of our Lord. Did you know, folks, every time we write the date, just a little reminder, God entered this world in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me stop there. That person entered as a human Why did God do it that way? I mean, maybe there wouldn't have had to be all these prophecies that we wouldn't miss it if he didn't didn't come as a human. Why why didn't God like split open the sky and there'd be great, great pageantry with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and angels and thunder and lightning. And I mean, the whole world could see it and video cameras had been invented so we could capture it all on tape. 
mean, would, honestly, wouldn't that make it easier to believe in a God? Or how about this? Wouldn't it make it easier to prove God? I bet some of us in here, we got a friend, we got a family member, a little antagonistic toward the whole idea of God. Man, if Jesus would have come that way, wouldn't it have been easier to believe, easier to prove? Yeah, maybe so, but... You know, the interesting thing is, as we walk throughout the scriptures, we see some places where God did that exact kind of thing. And you know what? It didn't help them believe. Didn't make it easier to prove. People saw some of the most dramatic things God ever did. And a month later, two months later, they're walking away from them. That really wasn't what Jesus' purpose in coming was, to to prove the existence of God. No, he, he came for another reason. As a matter of fact, as we walk through the New Testament, I think some statements that Jesus makes, a couple of statements made by the apostles, other New Testament writers, I think you can come up with about six, maybe seven, what I would call purpose statements, where Jesus says, I came into the world for this. This is why I'm, I'm here. You can get about six or seven different statements about why Jesus came, but one of them is directly tied to the virgin birth. There's, there, the, the virgin birth brings about, makes possible, one of the biggest reasons that Jesus entered this world. Now, there's a lot of verses we could go to to look at this particular reason, but I chose one out of Hebrews. Hebrews 9 and 10. As a matter of fact, it's a series of verses and phrases kind of put together. I would encourage you to read all of Hebrews 9 and 10 uh, this week. Won't, won't take you probably five or six minutes. But in there, it says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, just stop for a moment on that. Folks, that phrase... Maybe, and I'm just making this up off the top of my head, but I'm not far off, I promise. That phrase may be one of the top 25, maybe one of the top 10 phrases in the entire Bible. In its significance, in its clarity, in what it's explaining to us. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. We, you, I have a sin problem. And that problem is not going to be corrected. It is not going to be fixed without there being a shedding of blood. Saying, why does there there have to be shedding of blood? Why does someone or something have to die? Folks, think about how significant. Now, it's God's world, right? He can establish things the way he wants. And he said, hey, there is a cost to sin. Think how important it is that it's death and blood that is the cost of sin. Because if you'll think about what you and I normally do, we downplay our sin. We, we usually try to ha- show how inexpensive, how irrelevant, how unimportant our sin is. We downplay it. And yet, as you watch something die, as you watch blood spill, what is to be communicated in that is, oh my gosh, man, my sin's a lot costlier than I was thinking. My, my, my sin's a lot bigger than I was thinking. Now, there was a temporary, the operative word there, temporary, there was a, a temporary way of handling this till God in the fullness of time brought about his plan, and that was to provide animal sacrifices. But God said both in the old and in the new that it's ultimately it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, hey, we call that what? Christmas. Christmas, Yeah. When Christ came into the world, uh, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But look at this, folks, a body you have prepared for me. That's what the virgin birth is about. It's about God 
taking on a body. Look at the end of this passage. And by that will, by what will? By the will of the Father to give the Son a body, we, that's you and me, have been sanctified. We've been made holy. We've been declared holy. We've been declared in right standing with God. Everything now is okay between us and God. Through, how did that happen, that we became okay with God? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now this is an amazing thing what's going on here. God has established that the cost of sin to get it fixed, to clean it up, is going to be blood. But then he comes back and says, okay, now where can that blood come from? The blood of animals isn't going to do it. That's, that's impossible. Our blood can't do it because our blood's the problem. Our blood is tainted with sin. If it's my blood being shed for my sins, that means I'm dying in my sinfulness. I'm dying without the problem being corrected, which now means I enter eternal separation from God or what we call hell. So my, blood, my blood's not going to work. So what kind of blood? What, what blood can take care of any and all sins in my life? What kind of blood would be powerful enough to cover all the people ever born that would trust in that blood, that would turn to that blood? What kind of blood could be powerful enough to impact eternity? Do you see how these questions are building, folks? There's no blood out there except God's. Folks, God set up a system. This is crazy. God set up a system where in the end... Only he could pay for it. Only his blood. Only his body. Now we could just stop right there, fall out of our face crying and say praise God. And perhaps we should. But maybe we would scratch our head and say, now wait, wait, wait a minute. How can God die? H how is God going to shed blood? Isn't that what Hebrews just told us? The father prepared a body for his son so that he could die. So that he could die for you and for me. See, the virgin birth was the avenue by which that human body was applied to the deity of Christ. Now, in that virgin birth, as he took on humanity, he didn't lose his deity. He, he kept right on being God. The scripture is very clear to us that this, this person that enters the world, and this is important, his deity, the, the virgin birth is important to his deity. As he enters the world, that's not his beginning. Jesus is not beginning in Bethlehem. He is not beginning with what you and I call Christmas. He is the eternal Son of God. This is a profound point that separates us from Mormonism. And folks, I don't want to get off track today. This is a Christmas message. But I think this is a very significant thing to understand because it seems like, and maybe I'm the only one who feels this way, seems like in the last two or three years, all of a sudden Mormonism has kind of been adopted as another Christian denomination. It's just, it's just kind of being seen as, well, that's just another brand of Christianity. And nothing changed. For, for over a hundred years, they have been considered a heretical cult. And they are heretical. They're a heresy compared to orthodox Christianity. Nothing has changed, and yet, because we don't really know what we believe or why we believe, well, they use the name Jesus, and they talk about him being the Son of God. But folks, you have to have them define those terms. You see, they do not believe 
that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. They believe his beginning was in Bethlehem. They believe he was born only a man, that he lived only as a man, that he died as a man, and after that he became a, small a, because there's lots of them, he became a God. One of the sons of God. And there's nothing unique about him. For if you're a good Mormon, when you die, you also will become a God. Folks, that is nothing like what Christianity teaches. You know, there's some differences between, between us and Methodists and us and Presbyterians or us and Catholics. We have some, I would call, minor differences. By minor, I don't mean unimportant Obviously, we believe what we believe. We believe the Scripture is communicating something very clear, very specific here. And sometimes we take that a little bit different ways and say, well, our group's going to understand it this way. Our group's going to understand it that way. We can still love each other, fellowship with each other, and we'll get it worked out in heaven. Amen? But that's not what's going on with Mormonism. You cannot disagree on the deity of Jesus Christ. You cannot disagree on the authority of scriptures. You cannot disagree on how a person is saved and be called Christianity. And Mormonism is not in any shape or form Christianity. The scripture is so clear to say Jesus did not begin at Bethlehem. Let me show you two passages again. One Old Testament, one New Testament. In Micah, this is about four or five hundred years before what you and I call Christmas Day. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me. See the words, come forth. There's a beginning here. You're going to come forth for me, one who's to be a ruler in Israel. Remember, God wants the Israelites to know when the Messiah is here, when this great ruler, this great king is coming. And so he says, hey, here's, here's one of the ways how you're going to know who he is. He's coming out of Bethlehem. Oh, okay, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But wait a minute, let me be clear here. Let's go ahead and add the rest of the sentence because the rest of the sentence says his beginning is not in Bethlehem. It says, whose coming forth, you see the same word, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now we might look at that and say, okay, so Jesus actually came before Bethlehem. So what, he came from the old days, the 1950s, you know, happy days? You know, he's, he's really, really, no. Folks, this is not retur- referring to a time in our time period. As a matter of fact, if you turn to Daniel chapter 7, you'll see Daniel worshiping God. And a couple of times there, he refers to God as the ancient of days. The sun came forth from God. The Ancient of Days. This whole phrase here is referring not to a hundred years ago, a long, long time ago. This is referring to eternity past. In other words, as Jesus comes forth from Bethlehem, don't confuse him with just a normal baby being born. He came forth from eternity. He existed in eternity past. And Jesus explains the same thing about himself. He is teaching this to the Pharisees. They're getting angry. They kind of see where he's going. And so they ask him in John eight fifty eight, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Truly, truly, in the New Testament, it's like, I'm saying, Now listen to me, I really mean this. Okay, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Two short little words, only three letters, and there is a profound wealth of knowledge right there. I am. If you took that little English, those two little English words right there, translate them into Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. Do you know that name? 
That is the personal name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. In that, in the meaning of that word is basically God saying, I am self-existent. I am eternal. I am the uncaused cause of everything. I am the one who has always been. And in this moment right here, Jesus is saying, you know that one that y'all know so well that was at the burning bush with Moses and you tell that story all the time? That was me talking. They say, well, now wait a minute, Pastor. How do you know all of that is meant in that two little words right there? You know, sometimes you can get the meaning of something by seeing how the original audience heard it. How the original audience who knows the language, who knows the context, who knows what's being communicated, you can tell what something means by watching the audience who heard it. And they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because to claim to be God was blasphemy and deserving of stoning. They understood exactly what he was saying because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And by entering this world through the virgin birth, he put on that body. He put on suffering, he put on humility, and ultimately he put on that death. But by coming through the virgin birth, he did not inherit sin. He remained holy. He remained God in that. Folks, through the virgin birth, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. As a, as a God, he could do a wonderfully powerful work that was eternal for you and me. And as a man... He could die. As a man, he could die. You know, there's more for us, theologically speaking, academically speaking. There's a whole lot more to understand about the virgin birth, and it's important. There's more to understand about what it means that Jesus walked on this earth 100% God, 100% man. But for today and for this month ahead, let's just know this. When we see that word virgin on the Christmas card where we read the Christmas story in our homes, when we hear that, let us remember that that word represents an extreme expression of love for you and for me. For that baby is indeed very God and very God. And through the virgin birth, he put on humanity so that he could die. So that you and I could be restored into a love relationship with God. So we could be restored to heaven That is what went on in that virgin birth. You know, folks, the virgin birth is the beginning of the cross. Now, how are you and I supposed to respond to that? What what are we supposed to do with that information? Is it it just kind of a neat little thing to tuck away in our heart? Something to just kind of make us feel warm and and, and loved and we move on about our business? Or, Or does the virgin birth, is it supposed to have some kind of impact on how I live Tuesday afternoon? Is it supposed to have some kind of impact on me December 27th? Yes, it is. Here's the impact the virgin birth should have. You are loved. Act like it. You know what that means? It means don't act unloved and uncared for. Do you know what? Almost every one of us has, if not every one of us. Maybe some even at this very moment. And it's because of a certain person and what they said or what they did or maybe even more than one person. But it it has left us feeling very unloved. It it has left us feeling uncared for. I get that. I understand the impact another person can have on us. But you're not unloved. And you're not uncared for. 
So stop acting like it. Act like somebody for whom an extreme measure of love has been communicated. Now you say, well, okay, (laughs) what do I do now? How how do I act? Well, you already know that. How did you act? How did you act that moment you felt like somebody just so overwhelmingly loved you? How did you feel when, when love was just bubbling around all over you? I bet you were smiling. I bet you had a little spring in your step. I bet nobody could ruin your day. Because your whole perspective on life is, man, I am deeply loved. I am deeply cared for. You know, I would say the fact that we're so loved means this. We should love big. We should forgive big. And we should give big. Because that's exactly what was happening for us. When Jesus Christ came through the virgin birth and Mary into our world.